Proverbs chapter 18. If you're not turned there yet, if you'll join me back in the book of Proverbs as we continue our journey through this workshop of God's wisdom given to us, sort of proverb by proverb, each one kind of covering different topics, almost a sermon in and of itself. Proverbs 18 verse 1, I particularly have always loved this proverb, uh, not because of any other reason other than the fact that I think that the truth that it states has been such a valuable principle, uh, not only in my own life personally to help keep me at track on times, just as a, as a follower of the Lord, but I tell you many, 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 many times I have seen the truth of this proverb unfortunately play itself out in the lives of people who I've kind of watched pull away, disconnect, begin to get caught up in kind of just disconnecting themselves from the body of Christ, from the church, from just individuals generally. And I tell you, the truth here is incredibly valuable. I would encourage you to memorize it to meditate upon it, let it become part of the fabric work of your own being. It will protect you, as well as let it be something that guides you when you see people disappear, that you understand what potentially is going on, and that you would let the Spirit of God, if he prompts your heart when you see someone disappear, to recognize that that's someone maybe that you should go pursue or reach out to, because typically it's not a good thing when people begin to pull back, disconnect, and disappear. Notice what Proverbs 18.1 tells us. It says, a man who isolates himself. So notice, they're an individual who's making a choice, for whatever the reasoning may be, to isolate themselves. The Bible says, is doing such, seeking their own desire and raging against all wise judgment. Now, let me just say in connection to this verse Though certainly brief times of temporary, not isolation, but I would use the word temporary times of separation from other people in order to spend focused time seeking the Lord, spending time alone with God, that's a good thing. That's a beneficial thing. In fact, sometimes that's a a necessary thing. You know, Jesus himself, at times we read in Mark's gospel, where Jesus got up, it says, a long while before daylight, and he went away from the rest of the disciples, and he just spent time talking to his father and just sort of spending time alone with the Father in heaven, which seemed to be something that was necessary for his own personal refreshment spiritually as a man, and just to commune with his Father, to receive direction from the Father, and that was very valuable. In fact, you remember the disciples go looking for Jesus, and they find him and kind of interrupt his quiet time. Has that ever happened to you before? So now you know it even happened to Jesus too. And so they come and they, they, they pursue Jesus and they say, Lord, the ministry is happening. We need to go back and, and do more. And Jesus said, no, no, no. What we need to do is go on to the next location because that's why my father sent me. And rather than Jesus being directed by the opinions and the ideas of even well-meaning godly people, Jesus said, no, I know what my father has told me to do. And so I'm going to follow my father's direction. And the reason he had his father's direction was because he spent time alone with God and away from other people. Uh, And so, again, there's certainly great value in getting alone. I think we should do that. I think in this day and age with technology and cell phones and all these things, you know, I know for me, I I discovered a long time ago, I cannot have a devotional life 
with this thing even in buzzing distance of my ear. I can even put it on silent. But like you, you can hear, right, just across the room. Oh, I wonder what that is. Wonder, I wonder what. And, and even if it's not the ding, ding, it's just the buzz, buzz. And so I've just learned that I need to disconnect from everything and everyone, certainly on a daily basis. And I think sometimes it's important. You know, nothing wrong with separation for the sole purpose of seeking God, spending time alone with God. That's vastly different than what's being described here where the Holy Spirit is giving an express warning, giving God's wisdom so that we don't err in foolishness in regards to isolating oneself. The idea is from people, from relationships, from community, we might say, from, you know, from the church family, the congregation, isolating ourselves from just other you know, human social relationships that God has brought into our life that are supposed to be a natural part of our existence. God is cautioning us here that doing such isolating oneself is never healthy. In fact, it's not only not healthy, he gives here the, the indication that it's actually an indication that things are starting to go in a wrong direction. That when we start do that, it's not just not healthy. He says it's actually something where things are starting to go amiss. He says the one who isolates himself is two things, seeking his own desire now and raging against all wise judgment. So he warns against the danger of making any kind of choices or actions where we separate and isolate ourselves from others and we kind of detach. We start pulling away from people. We're not interacting and living interdependently in community the way that God intended us to. Again, if you look up the word isolation or to isolate, it describes doing things to make yourself remain alone or to be kept apart from interacting with people. That's what God's warning against, doing things to make yourself remain alone or to keep yourself apart from interacting with people. And why is that bad? He says that's raging against all wise judgment. First of all, it's raging against the wise judgment of God because God clearly all throughout his word tells us that we were created to be relational people to have a relationship with God vertically first and foremost, but we are created to live in an interconnected way as social creatures. We are intended to have relationship with other human beings, to interact, to live interdependently, whether it's with our spouse, our family, our friends, the congregation of God's people. We're not intended to live isolated and alone. And of course, there are many reasons for that. And again, as you can tell, I, mean, I could preach an entire sermon just on that one verse, half of it just being the many reasons why God doesn't want us to isolate and why we're supposed to live interdependently for things like our own health, mentally and emotionally and spiritually, for our own stability, for our safety, to, to keep ourselves away from harmful things so that we can stay on track, so that we can both receive from other people the things that we need to receive from other people, as well as so that we don't get so stinking self-focused and introspective that we're selfishly not contributing to other people what we're supposed to responsibly be contributing by being connected to other people. That works both ways. Isolation isn't just bad because I'm not receiving what I need to stay healthy and stable from other people. It's also, quite honestly, a very selfish way to live because basically I'm robbing other people from receiving the help and the benefit and what I'm supposed to contribute 
as a person being able to share what I can to bless and serve and to minister and to help other people around me. So again, this is and certainly important and all the more important and required for us as God's people and as Christians called to live together as the body of Christ. And wisdom tells us two common problems attached to those who are isolating. And again, if you see someone starting to isolate, if you find yourself tending to want to isolate, the Holy Spirit says, let me share wisdom. Here's what's going on. When someone's starting to isolate themselves, they've disappeared. The Holy Spirit says one of the reasons is potentially that they're now seeking their own desire. In other words, it's someone who's wanting to pursue their own selfish desire, and so they're using the pathway of isolation to be disconnected from accountability to other people so others aren't aware what they're doing, they're not involved in their life, and it is much easier to pursue your own selfish desires, not God's will and God's purposes, if you don't have accountability, right? If you don't have resistance in your life, and that's part of what relationships do. They bring resistance, and it's harder to seek our own desire rather than what is right in the sight of the Lord. It's harder to do that if there's people connected to our lives because they'll bring resistance and accountability, which is a good thing for us. And he says the other thing is typically when people are isolating, they're raging against all wise judgment. In other words, there's someone who knows that they will get wise judgment from other people around them as God brings wise judgment and counsel and thoughts into their life, and they know that that wise judgment will be given, or maybe it already has been given, and because they don't want to be held to account for it, they disconnect so that people can't speak truth into their life. And so it's much easier to live disconnected because they don't want to follow that wise judgment. And so this is the reason isolation starts to happen and how the devil manipulates all that. You know, and he has a really crafty way to work in people's minds to give them all types of reasons to do that. But listen, the Bible is very clear. Isolation's not good. Be very, very careful. We can be prone to it at times. We see people doing it. These are people who we should be concerned about, people that we should be reaching out to because usually God says nothing ever good is going on when someone is isolating themselves. They're typically heading in a very wrong direction. He says there, verse 2, and a fool has no delight in understanding, but in only notice expressing his own heart. So the indication here of this proverb is sort of it's a mark of foolishness to never have interest in wanting to basically be able to hear the insight of others. God says that's a mark of foolishness. The wise person wants to be able to learn from others, to be able to glean insight or receive advice or be taught or be educated or learn. But he says the fool, notice, has no delight. In other words, they find no pleasure in being able to understand things, to have people bring them into greater understanding about matters. Instead, the foolish person is only interested in expressing their own heart, or we might say airing their own opinion. <laughs> And he says, this is a mark of foolishness. When someone shows little to no interest whatsoever in, in learning, but they tend to be very prone to often enjoying telling others what they know all the time. They're always sharing what they think, giving their input, their opinion. They're very occupied with talking, but tragically, they're doing so much talking, they're never showing much interest in listening. And, and the reality is this, and we all know this in a practical sense, if you never listen, you can never learn, right? I mean, is that not a fair principle? If you don't listen, you can't learn. 
So if you're always talking and you're always expressing your opinion and wanting to be the one to be listened to and sharing your thought on that subject or what you think about that matter and you enjoy or you just tend to be prone to, to always incessantly talking in conversations, he says you're indicating there a foolish weakness in your life because you're indicating you don't have much interest in learning because everybody has something to teach one another. And he says, you're never going to be able to learn much if you never take the time to listen to others. So good nugget of wisdom, how to keep ourselves from foolishness and take a wise path instead of that. Verse 3, he then says, and when, wicked, when the wicked comes, in other words, wicked activity or behaving wickedly, these are things, a triplet he mentions, that are attached to that. Contempt comes also, and then with dishonor also comes Reproach. So here we kind of see a threefold companion to wicked behavior, or you might say three evident fruits God tells us here that are going to be attached to wickedness. This is what wickedness produces, at least these three things. First of all, it always produces contempt. That is, when a person behaves wickedly, it will bring contempt. In other words, the bottom line is nobody likes wicked people. When you're someone who is wicked or someone who is doing what is wicked, you're going to find that people have contempt towards you. There's going to be disdain towards you. Nobody likes a wicked person. Nobody enjoys when people do what's wrong. In fact, when people are doing what's wicked, they tend to be despised. People have contempt towards them. And he says another thing attached to wickedness is it will bring dishonor into the life of the one doing what's wicked. You'll lose respect because of the great disgraceful things you've done. And he says, as that dishonor comes, he says, it will then bring with it reproach. In other words, people will begin to look at you in negative ways. You'll begin to tarnish your own relationship. People will begin to lose respect. You'll, you'll lack credibility, and they'll be expressing strong disapproval towards you rather than anything of respect towards you. Verse 4, he then says, and the words of a man's mouth are deep waters, and the wellspring of wisdom is a flowing brook. So the words of a man's mouth, notice he says, are deep waters. Again, the idea is what comes forth on the surface, the words of a person's mouth, he says, actually are stemming from really deep waters. In other words, the idea is kind of like a deeper source within. Sometimes there may be, just like in deep waters, you only can see the surface, but there's so much down below the surface in deep waters, right, which you cannot see. All you kind of can see is what's happening there on, on the surface when there are deep, deep waters. And the idea here is the words are the surface things, but a lot of times there are many deeper unseen things that are the reasons behind the words that are being expressed out of someone's mouth. The words on the surface are oftentimes just one part of what's being said. Remember, Jesus made the statement out of the what? The overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, Jesus was saying there, you can tell a lot about the condition of what's going on in someone's heart by listening to what they're saying, because it's out of the overflow of their deep heart within that the words come forth out of their mouth. And so we can learn a lot about others. Truth be told, if we're willing to listen, we can also sometimes learn a lot about ourselves. And sometimes I know that can be very convicting. There are times when I find myself kind of just reevaluating what I just said in a conversation or 
you know, how, how I responded to something or, uh, you know, maybe at the end of a day and thinking, you know, man, it seems like I keep, you know, kind of, and, and I find, man, I seem like I keep seeming critical at times. And it's a time, it's, uh, Lord, you know, is my heart becoming critical? And am I getting jaded? And, and I think it's good sometimes to just stop and listen to what's coming out of our mouths at times because it can reveal, you know, the deeper motives maybe of what's in, inside of the heart of ourself or a person. Sometimes what's coming out of someone's mouth, it reveals, you know, maybe there's a reason behind why they're saying what they're saying. Or there's a reason that they spoke in the way that they spoke. Sometimes it's, it's out of the result of personal experience. You know, there have been times where sometimes we'll listen to somebody and we hear what they say on the surface. But sometimes we're not really loving or patient enough to realize, you know, maybe there's, there's a personal experience that's transpired in their life that makes them speak in the way that they do or be so passionate and say the things that they do about that subject or that matter. And again, to recognize that there's deeper waters down underneath kind of that are behind that, like a well that flows forth. And it's good to take that into consideration. Now, he says there, the second half of the verse, the wellspring of wisdom, the idea is a source of a spring that continues to express water. The wellspring of wisdom is like a flowing brook. So, in that same sense, you know, when someone you recognize as a wise person, and let's say they're the type of person who, when they speak, you tend to recognize, man, it seems like that's, they always given a source of wisdom. I mean, you know, there are times when, you know, I listen to certain individuals and it's like, man, oh, and it's just, you know, here's some great wisdom coming forth again. And you just realize that they just tend to be an individual who they often give very helpful counsel and sound advice, and, and they speak wisdom, and a lot of wisdom stems forth from someone. And God is saying here, where do you think that comes from? It comes from a wellspring of wisdom down below. And because their heart is like a wellspring of wisdom, that's why that wisdom, continuous fresh wisdom, keeps coming forth and that's why they're saying maybe really deep or wise things because their heart is like a spring of wisdom and a wise person's mouth, therefore, can repeatedly bring forth great wisdom. And so, again, the Bible tells us, remember back in the beginning of Proverbs, it's the Lord that gives wisdom and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So, Lord, fill my heart with your wisdom. Give me wisdom, God, so that my heart by your spirit like the Spirit of God working within that source of the spring of the Spirit of God, like a wellspring of wisdom, like a flowing brook. And look, we live in a world where there's a lot of foolish things going on, and a lot of people are very foolish in what they're doing. God help us as Calvary Chapelites to go out into the world here from Wednesday evenings and to be people who can sp spread forth some wisdom. And speaking to people's lives, our coworkers and our friends, helping them maybe with some marriage advice or some parenting advice or just some good life decision advice and, and to give them some of that wellspring of wisdom, to give them some of the depths of the wisdom God's given to you that you can pass that on to others around you and help them in that way. Verse 5, he says, it is not good to show partiality, notice, to the wicked, or the idea is nor to overthrow, and the same idea here is partiality again, to overthrow the righteous in judgment. So this proverb speaks of how it's never good, but rather foolish, we might say, to show partiality when dealing with people. And let me say with that, either in their wrongdoing 
or when they are actually doing what is right. And we can show partiality in dealing with people erring on both sides. And I think this proverb speaks about that. He says it's not good to show partiality to the wicked. In other words, if someone is doing what is wicked, we should never show partiality or favoritism towards them in their wickedness. And let's say, for example, because maybe uh, of intimidation, and we're intimidated by this person, so therefore we show partiality to them in their wickedness because we're intimidating by them. Or maybe in some ways we're being manipulated by them, or maybe we're hoping for some favor from them. And, you know, well, this person, I mean, yeah, they did something wicked, but, you know, you, you give them a little pass or you, you show them some partiality because, you know, in, in the wicked thing that they did, instead of bringing disciplinary action or punishment in some way, uh, and their sinful actions being dealt with or stood against, and instead we kind of just want to dismiss it because we're thinking, oh, well, they're a very influential person. So, I mean, yeah, what they did is wrong, but I want to keep in good terms with them because maybe I can get some benefit out of the relationship. And God says, that's foolish. That's wrong. Wrong, wicked behavior is wrong, wicked behavior. And you should never show partiality just to, in some way, get something from someone or because you're intimidated to deal with it. Now, Perhaps the other side of that, he says, or it's just as wrong in partiality to overthrow the righteous in judgment. And the idea seems to be there in harsh, severe judgment. The idea someone is perhaps doing what is right or seeking to do what is right, and perhaps maybe due to thinking kind of in the opposite sense, you know, where maybe somebody shows partiality to the wicked because it's an influential person or they want to get something from them or they're intimidated by them, so they cower. Here, the idea would kind of be the opposite. Maybe sometimes we make the mistake where perhaps we think, well, there's nothing to be gained from that person. I mean, they're a nobody. I mean, they're basically a disposable person. And so they really have nothing to contribute and we can't get much out of them anyway and they don't carry much value. So... You know, whether they're right or wrong, you know what, let's just, just and we just kind of harshly deal with them because we see them as insignificant or that we can't get anything out of them. So we just kind of overthrow them in kind of a hurricane of harsh judgment. And God says, that's not really wise either. Uh, neither one. He says, you know, there should just be fair, just judgment. And partiality is something that God does not show, right? God does not show partiality in any way to humanity he deals with people showing no favoritism. And again, if we want to be wise and reflect God, we should always do the, sh the same in the way that we interact and relate to and treat people. Verse 6, he comes back to this topic of the struggle with our mouths at times. He says, a fool's lips enter into contention and his mouth calls for blows and a fool's mouth is his destruction and his lips are the snare of his soul. So here the implication is how a person behaving foolishly can have the strong continual error of running their mouth in a way whereby the way they run their mouth foolishly, they're always getting themselves into trouble. And here God is cautioning against that foolishness. He mentions at least four different things here that foolish speech and behaving foolishly by running our mouths wrongly can cause problems in our lives. He says, first of all, there that the fool's lips enter into contention. In other words, running our mouths foolishly can cause us to become contentious. 
and engage in disputes and debates and arguments unnecessarily. And because perhaps we're always running our mouth foolishly, we're always getting into conflicts with people. And we're always getting into arguments and we're always seeming to get into debates and conflicts. And, and he says that that's an indication of foolishly running our lips. Sometimes it's wise to just be quiet, to let it go, right? To, we've seen Proverbs just to hold our peace, uh, to not go further. You know, we've read Proverbs where there is no fire, where there's no wood, the fire goes out, you know? Stop contention, we saw last time, before a major quarrel starts. In other words, like the breaching of a dam. As soon as you see a little bit of leak, you're going to get on that leak quick before the whole thing goes rushing open. And God says sometimes that's just wise. You know, Be wise with your words rather than enter into contention with foolish speaking. He also says another problem with kind of carelessly running our mouths. The fool sometimes also, by things that they say or how they talk, invite people to bring against them blows. The idea is punches or punishment. And he says, sometimes, foolishly speaking, can invite people to be angered at you or to bring punishment against your life. I mean, let's just be very honest. You know, even just through years, let's say, of junior high or high school, we all know someone, and maybe even just in your job place still, we all know people who sometimes when they're talking and they're talking, you just, you hear instead in your interpretive, you just basically hear, Punch me, punch me, punch me, punch me, beat me up, punch me. Right, and, and just, you just think to yourself, uh, somebody's going to do it. Eventually, somebody is just going to punch that person. And, and, and he's saying, look, that's an indication of foolishness. We don't want to be speaking in ways or saying things that we just don't need to say where we basically invite punishment into our lives. And we anger people towards us and cause people to want to, you know, give us a good strong blow or knock us out in some way. He says that's a self-inflicted problem by just the fool's lips at times. And he says a fool's mouth also can cause his own destruction, right? Sometimes foolish things can be said and foolish things being said, it can ruin a person's life. It can bring destruction. Sometimes foolish speaking can damage relationships, it's ruined marriages, it's brought destruction to opportunities and good situations, again, just speaking in foolish ways, and he says, and his lips, and the idea here again, notice, it's the fool, his lips are the snare of his soul. In other words, it's that foolish struggle with one's speech that tends to be the snare that keeps tripping up that individual from their soul progressing. And so again, if this is an area that it becomes a snare to our soul, we want to address this. Lord, help me. Help me to get this under control, to, 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 to wisely grow beyond this, Lord. I don't want my foolish mouth to be the continual snare of my soul in my life. Verse 8, he says the words, now look, he goes from the speaker, now he goes to the listener. So again, oh, I don't have a speech problem. Maybe you got a listening problem, though. You never know. We can err on either side, right? We've all been foolish before from time to time. He says, the words of a talebearer, a whisperer, we might say a, a gossip, a storyteller, the words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles. The idea is they're like creme brulee or I don't know, you know, whatever a, a fancy dessert would be. And they go down the idea is they're like, in, you know, an enjoyable, delightful dessert. They go down into the inmost 
body. So what he's referring to is how hearing, you know, hearing news, hearing stories of what's going on in a situation maybe, or we're hearing little tidbits of gossip or secrets. I don't know what it is in the perversity of our human nature, but that kind of stuff is just appetizing to our ears. It's like somebody tempting you with a dessert when you know already you've loosened your belt three notches at the restaurant, and they're saying, you should have dessert. Come on, look at this. And everything in your, in your body is saying, don't do that. Please, don't abuse me. Please, don't do it. But there's just that temptation that it, you know, it's, it's something that's satisfying, it's enjoyable. And so therefore, he says, look, listening to such things, they may be enjoyable to listen to, but he says they're never healthy may be enjoyable to listen to. It's enjoyable maybe to listen to gossip or listen to somebody tailbear or share secrets or pass along stories or whatever, and it may be tempting and enjoyable, but he says it's never good because that stuff goes down into the inmost body. What I see him speaking about there is that goes down and it becomes a part of you because once you listen to that stuff, once I give ear to that stuff, now that goes down inside of me and it deposits inside of you things that are no good. And a lot of times what it does is things said by talebearers can taint your heart attitude. And they can taint your perspective towards a person. And because you listen to that little tasty trifle that some little talebearer needed to tell you, now all of a sudden you've got a skewed perspective towards a person. Or all of a sudden you've got a distorted view towards a situation because that went down inside of you and now just like the calories of that dessert are making you fat and unhealthy all of a sudden now it's making you kind of unhealthy because of the stuff that that tail bearer spoke so sometimes it's good to caution and to be careful and if somebody's beginning to go that route to put up the yield sign thanks but no thanks you know and, and to to sometimes even do what you can to stop if you sense that's what's happening Verse 9, he comes back to this familiar theme of diligence versus laziness. He says, he who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. So again, there's just a very picturesque way to, again, caution us against the foolishness of laziness, uh, of being slothful. And again, the word slothful, of course, just speaks of being lazy or we might say careless sloppy or just kind of, you know, not being diligent, being unproductive in one's responsibilities. And notice he says here, being unproductive or lazy or careless and sloppy, he says it's not just wrong. Here he implicates as well, it's also something that's very harmful. So it's not just wrong to be lazy, God says, to be slothful. It's actually harmful. He says those who are slothful in their work are just like a brother, a relative to a person who's a great destroyer. Because truthfully, slothfulness and laziness in our work, whatever, what we do is we're wastefully destroying good things, right? We're wastefully destroying opportunities. We're wastefully destroying, uh, you know, maybe resources. We're wastefully destroying, you know, things that could be productive and beneficial. And because of our slothfulness, instead of enhancing things or building things, we're just really destroying. So again, another good prompting of why it is wise to seek to be diligent in our work so that we're doing good things and being productive and to, to stay away from the foolishness of becoming slothful in our work because we're really just becoming a relative to those who are just, we're just like someone who's destroying things, he would say. Verse 10, he says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. And of course, when we read this phrase, the name of the Lord, it speaks of the, the nature 
the character, who he is. Again, when you say someone's name, when you hear someone's name, you think of the person and everything you know about them. So when the Bible speaks of the name of the Lord, that's the idea, everything we know about the Lord. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run to it and are safe. Now, again, in that culture, a strong tower was a place that you would run to quickly in hard times and in dangerous times. So when times were hard or a situation became dangerous, to ensure you were not destroyed, you would run to a strong tower, to a high tower. It kept you safe, it protected you, it gave you a place of advantage rather than disadvantage, and it gave you a better vantage point on the situation because you were looking from a higher perspective. And he says this is what people do naturally so that they can be equipped better and victorious in hard and dangerous times. And he says this is what we also should do in life in regards to running to the Lord. When a dangerous situation arises, when a difficult hard time comes, he says we should run to the Lord quickly. Instead of running down into the pit and sitting in the pit of despair, instead we should run to the Lord like a strong tower so that we can have a higher vantage point from God's perspective on the situation so that we can be better equipped to have a right perspective and handle it. So he says, that's the thing to do. Just like that strong tower, run to the Lord in those times when it's greatly needed. Verse 11, he then says, the rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own esteem. So again, excess wealth, he says, a rich man's wealth, it's like a strong city. A strong city was well fortified. It had some degree of uh, security. And so excess wealth certainly can provide some degree of security. It can provide safety to help us from danger and from hardships. So excess wealth has some benefit of security, yet the danger in excess wealth and putting our security in it is that sometimes those with excess wealth foolishly view themselves as if they're completely safe and secure from absolutely everything. And this is the idea where he says, it becomes like a high wall that is like a barrier, a protective wall in his own esteem. In other words, the rich person starts to foolishly do what 1 Timothy 6 warns about, to trust in uncertain riches rather than in the living God who provides all things. And that's the error. When you have excess riches, you can start to trust in your riches. And he says, but those riches are so uncertain. And we should instead be trusting in the living God who's the provider of all things. Because the truth of the matter is, life proves it out. Some of you may have experienced it. Certainly, we just look around the world. We've all witnessed it. The reality is money can't solve every problem. It can't. Money can solve a lot of problems, but money cannot protect from disease. It can't stop death. You can have a million dollars. You can be a, a billionaire. And if you contract a disease or an illness, no matter how much money you spend, that money still may not be able to keep you from illness and even from death. Money is not the guarantee all to protect from everything. And so we have to be careful that we don't overly put too much security or reliance thinking that money, or well, if we just have excess money, it can shield us from everything. It is our high wall. Nothing's going to get us. We're safe. If we just keep, you know, and, and look, nothing wrong with having excess money, but be careful. Anything can knock that wall down real quick. 
And anything can come plowing through that wall, and money is not a wall that cannot be overcome. Life and reality and certainly even sickness and disease, some hardships are just unstoppable whether you have money or not. And so again, we want to have our trust in God and not trust in just the high protective walls of our excess wealth if we should be blessed with being able to have such. Verse 12, he says, Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, and before honor is humility. Now, we've seen this principle numerous times. Remember, he said back in chapter 16, that very famous proverb, pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit is before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. So again, here, he's just giving this very important caution, wisely reminding us that our heart condition can and certainly will determine our experiences in life. Notice he says the first part of the proverb there in verse 12, that destruction is typically preceded by a haughty heart. We see that principle repeated in Proverbs, that many times destruction is preceded by arrogance, pride, or just having a haughty attitude within our heart, allowing our heart to become arrogant Letting pride start to direct us in what we do or how we behave many times will lead to the destruction of things in our lives. And so God's trying to caution us from that foolishness and to help us live wisely. And instead, he says, the other side of that is verse 12, before honor is humility. So the idea is there the opposite side. Honor is typically preceded by humility. Typically, in order to experience honor, one must be first willing to go down the pathway of humility, to seek to walk in humility, to allow ourselves to be humbled from time to time, to be brought into greater humility, because he says it's that spirit of humility that prepares us, God says, to handle honor. God looks at it that way. Remember, God says he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so, again, we're looking, we want God's honor, we want God's grace, but God says the pathway towards that is humility must precede honor. Verse 13, great, great principle as well. He who answers a matter before he hears it, I know none of us have ever done that before. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is a folly and a shame to him. We might say, beware of responding to a matter before you have all the information, right? Be careful of responding in a situation, answering in a situation. Take time, God says, be wise, get the facts. He's going to say in the verses below, and get both sides of the story, not just the facts. Make sure you also get both sides of that story before you come at it with your response or your determination, Beware of responding, he says, answering a matter before you've truly heard it. You know, answering or acting in a a way before really hearing things out more foolishly, more, more fully, he says, that always leads to foolish behavior. We end up entering into folly and shameful regret. To not get all the details, and boy, we've all done that, right? Somebody starts talking, and you just, you know, right away because you're impatient or, you, you know, you're a solution person. I mean, I know how many times I... Had to learn that early on in marriage. You know, I'm wise enough now, 28 years into it. Now, sometimes when my wife starts talking, I'll just pause her and say, do you want me to listen or help fix the problem? 
Because my natural default always was, as soon as she started expressing the problem, fix it. That's what I do. I'm a husband. That's what I'm here for. So, uh, you know, and, and sometimes bef- you start trying to fix it right away, and you don't even have all the facts and all the details. And so sometimes, again, we start responding to people or reacting to people in a conversation, and we don't take the time to hear somebody out first. And God says, well, if we don't take the time to be loving and patient enough to hear things out first, we don't have a proper reference point. And then when we don't have a proper reference point because we never heard them out rather than just talking them everything we wanted to say, and we never heard them out first, God says two things are going to happen. One, you're going to make a mistake. Folly is going to happen. You're going to jump to conclusions. You're going to make mistakes. And he says you're not going to be thorough because you didn't respond by taking the time to hear them out. And so typically folly happens. We, we respond in an unfair way, or we jump to conclusions we shouldn't have jumped to. And he says the other part of that, it's not only a folly, it ends up being a shame. Because then sometimes, right, we've all experienced that, comes back around and shame on you. If you would have just listened longer, right? If I would have just taken the time to hear things out a little bit, and then sometimes we end up behaving in a shameful way ourselves and conducting ourselves irresponsibly, and and it ends up being a shame if we just would have taken a little bit more time. Great, great principle for life and relationships. Verse 14, the spirit of a man will sustain him in sickness, but who can bear a broken spirit? So again, notice the inward condition of our spirit, we might say, the Bible saying, is more important than our physical health. Because here he says, even if someone's in sickness, they're suffering physically, He says, the spirit of a man can sustain him even in sickness and suffering. If someone is strong in spirit, they're they're in strong relationship with God, their spirit is healthy, they can navigate sickness and health issues and struggling, and they can be sustained through the process and glorify God through the process, because again, they're sustained by their strong spirit. But he says, in contrast to that, If someone has the greatest health physically, but if their spirit is not strong or their spirit is broken, he says, who can bear a broken spirit? Again, a despondent human spirit, a broken human spirit, depressed, discouraged, he says, that's tough for anybody to bear. That has been the downfall of many people. And so in light of this, what's the wisdom out of this? Wisdom understands the value of keeping one's spirit healthy and strong because that's what will sustain you when the hardships come, by having a strong inward spirit. And in the other side of that, a broken spirit is unable to endure hardship, so wisdom also understands we should encourage people's spirit when they're in hard times, not just fix their circumstances. You may not be able to change their sickness or their circumstances, but you can strengthen their spirit so that can sustain them through their hardship. And that also means this, and I caution all of us in this area, Be very, very, very careful that you do not become guilty of breaking someone's spirit. You do a huge disservice to a human being when you break their spirit. Because he says there, a broken spirit who can bear. There are people that go down pathways of depression and despondency and suicidal tendencies because someone broke their spirit. And they're not able to sustain it because of that. So be very, very careful in how you relate to people. Verse 15, the heart of the prudent acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So again, one of the aspects of wisdom 
is wanting to acquire more knowledge, as we've talked about, to be teachable, to always want to learn, increasing knowledge, whatever the subject may be. Verse 16, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. Now, the word gift there is not the same word we've seen before, bribe. So this isn't talking about like a selfish bribe to get something that you want. Here he's talking about a gifting. God has given us all certain gifts or giftings, and we're able to utilize these in good stewardship. And in finding avenues to employ our gift, God says that's a wise thing because as we put our gift to use, that can be a pathway for opportunities to open up for us. As we use our gift or our giftings, a space may become available for us maybe to do something to employ our gift. And God said that may be the thing that opens up doorways that creates room for opportunities. That brings you maybe before a great person, someone of influence or someone who can in some way help or assist you through the natural course of events of using those gifts and how God can use those gifts to open greater doors and opportunities as we employ them. Verse 17, here's that other verse I mentioned a few moments ago. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. So again, the principle here, wisdom understands. We often say there are always what? Two sides to every story, right? There are always two sides to every situation. I've learned in marital counseling after over two decades, there's always three sides, actually, not two. There's his side, her side, and then the truth somewhere. But there's always two sides to every situation, every you know, story, every dispute, every misunderstanding. There's always two sides. And he says, the first one to plead his calls that gets all worked up, the first one to, you know, jump the gun and, do you know, like, and they just start blowing up and, you know, and just, and you listen to them, oh my goodness, yeah, I can't believe they would do that. And what in, and all of a sudden, here you're, you're, you're building the whole case because you listen to the prosecuting attorney first. Wait a minute. There's also a defense attorney in this trial too that's going to plead the cause of the other side. And most people are supposed to be innocent until clearly proven guilty, right? And so you got to be careful. He says, typically what happens is somebody gets our ear first, right? And we hear, the, and it's just a natural human inclination. You all of a sudden become kind of favorably disposed. Man, I can't believe that. And yeah, and, and, right, and, and everybody, as they express their side, of course their side's going to sound accurate. But he says, but then their neighbor comes. And they say, can I, can I share my side of that? What happened on, on my side and, and my perspective towards that? And can I share with you my details of the accounts of what actually unfolded there? And, a little ba- and then all of a sudden you hear the other side and you go, oh. Oh, well, that, that kind of gives a whole different perspective on the whole thing now. And all of a sudden, things either get balanced out a little bit better, or sometimes you realize the first party that came was really just in a very intense way expressing their side, and you realize, whoa, they're way overreacting here, and you hear the other side, and you get a more balanced view. And so, again, really, really wise, you know, always, always wait, get both sides recognize it's a natural thing. As soon as you hear one side or one person's story, you know, one man has said before, it'd be wise every time somebody starts to tell us their side of something that we stare at them and we go like this. Now, for those of you who aren't attending church and, and can't see the, but listening through the podcast, I have one hand over one ear. 
And as that person is talking and telling their side and you're holding one hand over one ear, eventually you go, why are you doing that? And you can say to them, I'm leaving this ear for the other person's side of the story. Great wisdom, huh? I'm leaving this ear for the other person's side of the story. Great, great wisdom God gives to us there. Verse 18, casting lots causes contentions to cease and keeps the mighty apart. Now, casting lots, remember, was a way they would kind of almost like throw dice or whatever in that day. And it was a way really of just kind of trusting however the dice came out, that was the lot, and you accepted that. The idea is it's completely outside of my control, the ultimate determination in this situation. They just cast lots, and however the lot fell, okay, I couldn't control that. Solution, determination, I accept whatever fell out there. And I think in some ways the proverb here is trying to convey this idea that in the same way, allowing a decision to be determined by a source outside of your control with casting lots, sometimes when there's a contention, one of the greatest ways to get a contention to cease that may be keeping the mighty from attacking one another continually and, and pull them back apart, sometimes one of the best ways to solve contentions is sometimes just to allow the freedom of an outside source to make the determination. Because what happens? People, they contention, they're fighting, and they're fighting back and forth and fighting back and forth, and, you, and they're, you can't keep them apart. They're like two dogs attacking each other. And, and sometimes if we're willing to say, you know what, just like when they cast lots and nobody was in control of the outcome, what if we just let somebody else make a determination on this? What if we just let an outside party who's not one of us and not emotionally connected, what if we just let an outside source determine the outcome here and then we just accept that? And he says, sometimes that can just cause a contention to cease. All of a sudden, it can keep the mighty from attacking one another, and it can cause the contention to cease altogether. Why is that important? Well, look at verse 19. A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city, and contentions are like bars of a castle. Interesting, a brother offended. The idea picture there is a close relationship. And when close relationships become wounded by offenses, the deep emotional bonds it seem almost increase the severity of the hardship and make it more and more difficult to mend the relationship. Now, I'm not saying that's right, nor do I think God's word saying that right. God's just saying that's just the reality. That's what just tends to happen. When two people, friends, close relatives, some, you know, something of a close relationship, when one party becomes offended, he says, if that person in close relationship becomes offended, they will be harder to win than conquering a strong fortified city. Because for some reason, as human beings, when we are closely connected to someone, if there's some offense that happens, it's almost as if we justify, we have a right to be all the more resentful and, and I was betrayed and I can't believe you did this. And it causes a huge rift. And people like put up bars and, and castle walls. And he says, you're going to find in those situations, it's much harder to win someone back. Uh, and sadly, this is just a kind of a reality that, that happens at times. Some of us have experienced this. If you've had a close relationship in some way, an offense happened, and now it's so hard to reestablish connection with that person. Verse 20, a man's stomach shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth and from the produce of his lips 
he shall be filled. So again, there's more than one way to work. We can do manual labor. We can work productively in that manner, but also one can conduct work by their mind and their speech, you know, a salesperson, someone who provides, you know, supervisory roles, you know, a man's stomach can be satisfied by the fruit of his mouth from the produce, what you produce of your own lips, you can be filled and acquire what you need. The mouth can be used as a tool, as a way to generate an income, God says, if your mouth can do beneficial and productive things. Verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So the point there, verse 21, words have power. Look what he says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. In the power of our words, we have the ability to destroy things, to bring an end to things, whether relationally, opportunity. Think of what some people have said with the power of their tongue and how lives have been destroyed. The abortion industry, right? What happened in the Holocaust? Words, the power of tongue, destroying, killing lives. And in the same way, our words can also be used in a healthy way to bring life, to restore life to a person, to, to sustain a person's life. It can be our words. Listen, I've had the privilege of allowing my words to stop a person with suicidal tendencies from committing suicide, right? At times, we can use our words to protect a life, to sustain a life, to reinvigorate someone's life. The key is how we choose to use our words. Verse 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And Ryan Saldano and Chuck Kuzak would say to that, all right, yeah, two newlyweds, that's right. Right, marriage is a good thing. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And he says here, he who wisely recognizes finding a spouse, finding a wife, is a good and a beneficial thing. God says there's just wisdom to that. There's no wisdom in trying to do life alone. He says if you can find yourself a good godly wife, he says you find a good thing, a beneficial thing. And more than that, you end up finding that you are obtaining now, look at that, favor from the Lord. So particularly as men, we should look to find a good, solid, godly wife. And he says if you find a good wife, you're going to find blessing and favor from the Lord coming upon your life to a much greater degree. So if you found one, you know the truth of that. It's a blessing and it's a joy. If not, keep looking. You want the Lord's favor. It's a wonderful thing, a wife and a marriage. Verse 23, the poor man uses entreaties. The idea is because he's humble and has no power. He's respectful in the way he communicates because he realizes he needs help. But the rich, sadly, sometimes because they lose touch with reality and their wealth and Maybe they feel they're self-sufficient, and so they have power and influence. He says the rich answers roughly, and here I think the implication is, is, you know, when a person is in hard times, they tend to be a little bit more gracious and respectful in how they interact with others, but when a person maybe is smooth sailing, prosperity and wealth and riches, sometimes they start to lose touch with reality, and they start to get a little bit unkind to other people. And so God says, be, be careful of that. Don't, don't lose touch. You at one time maybe have been in that poor or hard spot. Be careful that if you're in a good spot, you're not getting rough in the way that you're dealing with other people and harshness. Verse 24, he concludes, a man who has friends must himself be friendly, 
but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So again, a man who has friends, if you want to have friends, you want to gain a friend, God says, guess what you have to be? You got to be a friend. And God says, if you want to maintain a friendship, guess what you got to do? You got to continue to be friendly towards that person. You know, what we've all said before, maybe we've whined or, you know, people, you know, if people come through the church, where they're not friendly there. Did you speak to anyone? Nobody talks to me there. Nobody ever invited me out front. Have you ever spoken to someone? Well, no. Have you ever called someone, asked someone out to lunch? Hey, if you want a friend, God says, you got to be friendly. It works both ways. Other people want friends too. So God says, we have to be friendly if we want to enjoy friendships. That's, again, that's just something, again, wisdom understands. That's maturity. It's foolishness to complain and be lonely. God says, be friendly. You'll find you'll, you'll make friends that way. Great for when kids are in school. Help our children with those thoughts. But he says, even if you feel really lonely, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And what a great thing. You know, I think it is much more valuable to have one good, solid friend, a comrade, that sticks closer than a brother, that's with you for years and years and years and years, just a strong, tight friendship. One of those is better than 10 social acquaintances. And even if you say, oh, I don't have a single friend, well, guess what? Jesus said that he calls us friends, and he is the fulfillment of verse 18. He is that friend who sticks closer than a brother. And the times when you had no friends and no one be friendly with you, that's when you found the friend in Jesus. What a wonderful reality that is, right? Let's stand, let's pray.